Um, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And if you need a page number, that's 1780. Maybe 3, 1783, 1780, 1, 1782, 1782. And if you're new, um, uh, we, I practice what's called expositional preaching. So if I'm preaching on a passage, it's just because it's next. It's, I didn't pick this out for you today, um, but we believe that the whole Bible is from God and for us to um, to grow in him and, and know him. So this is just the next passage. So the reason I say that is because this is a little bit of a hellfire and brimstone passage. So if you wanted to know how hellfire and brimstone I can get, you're going to find out today, which is great. The fun, the fun thing about this passage, though, is that it's actually hellfire and brimstone for Christians, which is a little bit different than the normal theme. So let's go ahead and see what we can do. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, um, inspired by the Spirit. Um, so he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. And we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. and He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Sounds like fun, right? Um... I've always kind of been intrigued by prophecy stories. And I don't mean like Christian prophecy stories. I mean like historic author prophecy stories. Like I remember when I was in ninth grade, we read the play Oedipus Rex about some guy that was born and somebody prophesied that it was his fate to marry his mother and then everybody kind of flipped out. And by flipping out, they kind of made it happen. And it was just an interesting story for a ninth grader. Um, but the, the funny thing about the story, which I didn't really recognize then, I, is that... Um, Humans have always struggled with the relationship of what they're assured is going to happen and what they do. So, for example, in that, in that story, they, they were struggling with the idea that if you believe something's going to happen, isn't it possible to make it happen by trying to stop it? How many times in human life have people seen some, believe for some reason something was going to happen, they try to stop it, and in trying to stop it, they make it happen? Right? Lots of passages in the Bibles that talk about that theme about how we sin and we sin in order to stop something from happening that we're afraid of, and in sinning we make it happen. We sin because we don't want our lives to be ruined, but yet through that we end up really messing ourselves up and people around us. Right? So it's a human theme. Everybody sees it. Even non-Christians see that theme in human life. But the opposite of that is true. And one of the famous literature literature examples of this is the, the play Macbeth where at the beginning of the play, he comes across these three witches that basically tell him he's invincible and he's going to become king. And in believing that, in being so assured that he's invincible, he's going to become king, he sets his heart on evil things in a way where he, he usurps becoming king, and in doing so, he gets himself killed so that he doesn't, he's not king. 
So that in, in that sense, one of the things Shakespeare is, is fiddling with in that play is the idea that um, by being assured that something is going to happen, in trying to make it happen, you can destroy it. But one of the reasons why all of that is in some ways interesting and that human beings have written about it for a few thousand years is because human motivation, real and powerful human motivation, lives on the edge of a knife between two things. Hold on. It lives on one side— Humans need encouragement. Now, we just say that word, but think about the word. We need to be encouraged, right? En means in. Couraged. We need to be encouraged. We need courage to be put into us somehow, right? And we, so we need to have something that inspires courage and hope. We need something that gives us a reason to believe that it's worth, that the fight is worth fighting, Right? There has to be some kind of confidence rooted in something that leads us forward. But at the same time, humans have to believe absolutely in their own fragility. And in so believing, being constantly vigilant and humble. Now think about that. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you take a human being— and tell them some story or tell them some truth that at the same time does both of those things. It, it, A, it gives them enough hope and encouragement that their lives are full of the kind of courage that's needed to move forward and to fight the good fight, yet at the same time they believe that they are extremely fragile and without vigilance and humility, they will participate in their own undoing. Right? Are you assured or aren't you? Are you going to make your destiny or are you not? Right? How do you do that? And if you find that question interesting, you may find the rest of this sermon interesting. If you don't, there's a vending machine down the hall. And you can <laughs> because when you look at this passage, that's what this passage is about. You see, if people are too self-assured— of their destiny, then pride can cause them to destroy it or demotivate them from successfully pursuing it. Too much self-assurance is a bad thing. This, this is the dilemma of the self-esteem movement, right? Give a kid a dream and tell them they're fantastic and what's going to happen. Well, they might think it's inevitable and not work for it, or they might think that if they don't get it, they're a victim and it's somebody else's fault and send them into a, all kinds of spiraling or whatever you want to call it. But what happens if you don't give a kid a dream and they don't believe they can accomplish anything? Well, they'll never try, right? Their will will be broken. So every parent and every educator and everybody who has this dilemma, how do you inspire kids? Right? Too much self-assurance— is bad, and, but too much fear and uncertainty is bad. Um, so, so if somebody has a real assurance of their destiny, they'll have the courage, power, joy, and hope that they need, and that will be an adequate ally against despair, fear, hardships, and disappointments, right? But yet, they have to have a sense of fragility that they constantly remember in order to inspire vigilance and humility. And vigilance and humility are the adequate ally against ignorant pride that leads to delusion and ultimately spiritual self-murder, which is what this passage is about. Um, and one of the things I think that's important to recognize is that um, Within this book, there is a really strong focus on what happens inside of people. I mean, one of the things that we, our culture talks a lot about is um, self-awareness and the idea that, you know, we don't know everything pur purposefully. And so we can be self-deluded and all that kind of thing. People talk real big talk about the fact that we can delude ourselves. But very few people believe that for themselves. 
Very, very few people live in such a way and think in such a way and make friends in such a way and converse in such a way and study in such a way and self-mentally coach in such a way and pray in such a way and read the scriptures in such a way as to demonstrate that they really believe that one of the primary and immediate dangers to their own soul and therefore everything in their life is self-delusion. But the Bible assumes that everywhere, not least in this book in 1 Corinthians. Think about chapter 8. If you weren't here, that's three or four sermons ago online. But chapter 8 starts out with this, with this problem. If you have real knowledge about God that gives you freedom, and you're thinking about how to live your life, what the Apostle Paul said, if you don't temper that knowledge with love, that knowledge will produce ignorance and pride in such a way as that you will use your freedom in the worst possible way. You'll use your freedom for idolatry, even though you're a professing Christian. You'll be an idolater, right? And so he gets to this passage, and he says, here's one of the things that you need to not delude yourself about, your security. Now, that gets everybody up in arms a little bit because everybody wants to now— hear the rest of the sermon on whether or not you can lose your salvation. The problem is that this passage doesn't talk about it. This passage doesn't explicitly seem to want to answer that question. For Paul, it's not a question. Right? He just simply says, look what happens when you get too deluded into your security. Right? It's a happy, it's a happy subject. So think about it this way. Look at the first verse. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Now, the English Standard Version translates that. um, I want you to know, brothers. And I really like the English, even the Standard Version. But in this case, the NIV is much superior because Paul actually says explicitly in the Greek, he doesn't say, I want you to know it. He says, I don't want you not to know it. That's what he says. I don't want you not to know it. That is, I don't want you to be ignorant of it. It's imperative that you don't not know this. This is a piece of knowledge you cannot afford not to have. Being ignorant of this is extremely detrimental, and you cannot afford to not know it. Now, that's kind of interesting because that's exactly the way he starts chapter 12, the whole bit on spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 starts, Now, brothers, about spiritual gifts— I don't want you to be ignorant. The exact same phrase. And what's the issue with spiritual gifts? It's the same issue. It's knowledge expressing freedom in a really awful way. Why? What does it lack? Well, where's the great love chapter in the Bible that's read at weddings but isn't referring to them? But applies to them. It's 1 Corinthians 13, right? The three chapters about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians is 12, 13, and 14. The one right in the middle, which is the key about understanding what these people needed to know about spiritual gifts, is about what? Love. The argument is that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13 is not husbands and wives should love each other forever and it's so sweet, which they should, but that without love, you can't possibly know what you need to know about spiritual gifts. Think about this. What, what 1 Corinthians argues, and I think the whole Bible argues this, but what 1 Corinthians argues is this. Without love, you are forever intellectually handicapped. That is, that all knowledge has a moral component. And without moral virtue, knowledge is impossible. Think about that. That is wild. How is that true? Because you are not disembodied logic. You are a being, right? You're a person. You have a physiology. You have a way of knowing. You're not just—you're not propositions and syllogism hanging in the air. You're a thing, and the kind of thing you and I are is the kind of thing that has to have certain virtues going along with our reasoning. Otherwise, our reasoning goes awry, And so without love, we won't use our freedom right because our knowledge won't lead to knowledge. It will lead to a kind of ignorance that is parasitic on knowledge because of the sort of being that we are. 
that make sense? And so therefore, love is an enormous part of the intellectual enterprise. It is, it is, it is part of, it's necessary for the pursuit of knowledge, and it is necessary for everything that knowledge talks about, which is everything. So quit telling me I'm not very loving because I'm so intellectual. I just proved that's wrong. Frank and I are having a moment. Thanks. Um, Fred, sorry. <laughs> so, um, look at verse 11 and 12. These things happened to them as examples and were written down for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, so look at that in verse, is it verse, it's verse 12, right? So, why is so there? Why, is, why does it say so, comma? So, comma, right? It's because you're just, you're about to read the whole point of the first 11 verses. That's why so is there. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. What, why does it say that? Here's why. Should let you think about it longer, shouldn't I? Here's why. Um, because if you think as a Christian, you're standing firm, like you're really rooted, you got it going on, you're a Christian, you're doing fantastic. The one thing that that absolutely proves that you should 100% know and be sure of when you feel like you're really standing firm is this, that you're deluded. If you're feeling really good about where you are, you have forgotten your fragility and you're becoming deluded. You, it's, it, it doesn't mean that you're standing firm. If you believe you're standing firm, that is exactly when you should be careful because you're going to fall. Why? Because that's when people trip. Why? Because they're becoming deluded. They think they don't sense their fragility anymore. The vigilance is getting dull. The humility is going away. And the progress of ignorance to delusion to turning against God and toward ourselves is accelerating. Think about how the Bible talks about damnation in the New Testament, right? It talks about a final judgment in which God will judge the living and the dead, right? And he will, he will, he will damn some people to a hell and he will, he will bring some people into heaven. But how does the New Testament talk about damnation in the present among living people? You see, if you, if you look for the biblical passages that speak about damnation in relationship to people who are still alive, what you will find is that it is always in reference to their personal, the level of personal delusion they are living under in relationship to God. So, for example, in 1 Timothy, there's these heretics that Paul is speaking about, and he says that such men are self-condemned. Why? Because their consciences have been seared with a hot iron. Now, what does that mean, right? right? It means their inner faculty of understanding truth and falsity, what's right and what's wrong, who God is and who I am, all of that wrapped up in, in moral knowledge and humility and God has been irreparably broken. It's been cauterized. It can't heal right anymore. Something has been fundamentally damaged in how it functions and how it heals and how it grows. It's that person's not going to recover. Their level of delusion has, them so, has so, them so walled in that it's extremely difficult to imagine them being pulled out of it. So in the present among living people, if you look at the New Testament, it talks about damnation or the process of a human being progressing towards damnation. It's delusion. It's in here. It's a lack of vigilance about who we are. The greatest battle Christians believe we are fighting is the battle inside of us. Because sin doesn't just produce sinful actions, it produces mental delusions out of which we do sinful actions. Right? You've got to believe that if you saw things exactly the way they really were, if your whole life, on some level, you could see God on his throne— Jesus reigning over all things, temptations coming from devils in the flesh, and you really could see everything exactly the way it was. Do you really think you'd ever really be te that tempted to sin? It just, the whole, the whole proposition would look so silly, right? You'd be like, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. Sin, re re it relies for nourishment on spiritual delusion. And the fodder and the seed and the water and the soil of that delusion is pride. 
And that's why a vigilance against that pride and an intense desire to grow in humility and therefore a belief in our own fragility is incredibly important. But here's the thing. That is not where this passage ends up leaving us because there's a verse 13. You see, you see it, 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 it brings us to the point of fragility for, for 12 verses. But then in the 12th verse, it says this, right? It's the verse that we all like to quote as though there's no 12 verses before it, right? It's sort of the Christian, oh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people who've never read the Bible have quoted me, well, I know God will never give me, never give me more than I can handle. It doesn't actually say that. It says you will not be tempted more than you can handle. And it says, why is that true? It says because God is faithful, right? And he will provide something, i.e. in a temptation, a way out, right? So what, what he's saying is this. He's saying, you and I exist in a world and in a moment and in a situation in which we are enormously fragile, you are fragile. Your spirituality is fragile. Your, your, the standing of virtue in your heart is fragile. Your, your desire and your willingness to submit to Jesus is incredibly fragile. Yet, when you are trusting in the faithful one for his provision, you are also invincible. As long, whenever you are in the place where your faith is in Jesus, you are trusting in the faithful one, and you are looking to his provision in whatever the temptation is that's looking to take you down, in that place, you are also invincible. Nothing has to take you down, and every battle can be won. So simultaneously, you are one of the most fragile things that has ever existed, and yet one of the most possibly invincible things that has ever existed which is designed to produce in us courage and vigilance that both come from humility. And one of the things I think, therefore, is really important for us to understand is this, that you may be a very confident person, you may be a very strong person, you may be a very boorish person, you may have a lot of authority, and you may be very good at using it, but your, your God-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-focused, level of courage will not grow larger than the, than the container of humility that exists in your heart. If you get a little shot glass of humility, then the amount of real gospel-centered courage that you have is a shot glass full. Because your courage isn't, doesn't reside in God is the great provider. God is the great warrior. God is the great savior. God is the great lover. No, it really, it really resides in you being those things. And so all the courage that you have is coming from something else, i.e. idolatry. And it's a delusion. So therefore, if you want to have more God-focused courage, you want to be a courageous person in a gospel-centered way with real virtue and a full truthfulness that's, that's built on love and the strength that comes from the cross, what has to happen is you need to get yourself a salad bowl amount of humility. Right? Or you need, you need a bigger container. You need like a, a pressurized keg or something, but you need something that can hold more. And as humility expands, courage can expand. When you become smaller and God becomes bigger and you realize that when you re rely on him and his faithfulness is your hope of getting from here to there and you really have stopped, stopped looking to yourself for it, there is a courage that is unflappable. There, it really is there, but it's not this, it doesn't look like other kinds of courage. It looks like the kind that just doesn't seem to give up no matter what you do, right? Like the people who wrote about William Wilberforce, that he had this strange kind of courage that it seemed like the more you hit him, the stronger he got. So let's look at four quick things about this passage. This sermon got a little out of order, but hopefully it'll make more sense this way. Here's four quick things to learn from this passage. The first is that these people were just as Christian as you. That's the whole point of the first paragraph. The, 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 the ancestors that he's talking about were just as Christian as you. 
A lot of times Christians have this idea that, oh, these were the Old Testament saints. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't know Jesus by name. They, they, they're, they're fundamentally different than us. We're safer than them because we have the Spirit and we have the full gospel, right? We know what happened and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and dwelling us. Therefore, we are not as vulnerable as they are. That is not the argument Paul is making here. The argument Paul is making here is he's saying these people were 100% as Christian as you are. And how does he do that? He talks about the Exodus, right? The people escaping Egypt, and they go through the, the divided Red Sea, and there was a cloud always in front of them. Clouds we know are made out of water, right? So they go through water. They lived underwater, and he said that w- that's like baptism, right? They were baptized into Moses. They were baptized into the promises of God, right? And then they ate the, the food and drink that God gave them to eat and told them to receive from him, to trust in him. That is, they had a kind of communion. The rest of chapter 10 and a good bit of chapter 11, Paul's going to talk about how they celebrate communion. That is, these people were a church. They had the two ordinances. They were baptized. They came to communion. And he says— and, and the both times he refers to the food, he doesn't just say they had this gesture they did. They had some ritual. No, he calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink because he is trying to make very clear that you and I understand that these people were being really personally, spiritually nourished by what God was providing for them. And what does he say about the rock? And he said that that spiritual drink was coming out of the rock and that rock was the law of Moses. Oh, no. Oh no, what did he say the rock was? The rock is Christ. That is, these people were Christians just like you in a manner of speaking. Spiritually speaking, in relationship to their security, their salvation, and their fragility, they were in exactly the same position as you. Now, that's really important to understand because, of, because now he wants to make the next point. That is, that they were mostly all destroyed. Um, Anthony Thistleton, who's a modern commentator on 1 Corinthians that I like, um, said the, the NIV actually does a pretty good job translating it when it says that their bodies were scattered over the desert. He said, but the point Paul is trying to make is he's trying to say something really evocative. So you really should translate it, their corpses were strewn about the desert. Because the, you can read that over and just say, oh, their bodies were scattered. That's kind of that's nice and antiseptic. That's, that's a pretty antiseptic way to say it. What he, what he wants us to see is to imagine looking out over this desert and seeing rotting bodies being picked over by vultures, thousands of them strewn across the desert as far as you can see. That's what happened to these Christians under God's control and command. Does that make sense? It's supposed to get your attention a little bit. And then in the next three verses, he uses died, killed, and killed. So he says, their bodies were scattered over the desert. In fact, he said, we shouldn't engage in idolatry or sexual immorality because in, 23, in one day, 23,000 of them died. And then he goes on, he says, then um, we also shouldn't test God because when they tested God, they were bitten by snakes and died. And we shouldn't grumble against God because when they grumbled against God, the destroying angel came and killed them. He says, died, killed, killed. Like, he's trying to get a point across here. They were just as Christian as you, just as Christian as me, and they died. Now, the third thing is, is that it really should have been pretty predictable. It's not like God was really nice when he led him out of Egypt, and then for some reason he got sunstroke in the desert and got really grumpy and started killing people. The the God who went and sought them out to save them out of that country was the same God in the desert. He did not change, nor has he changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When God revealed himself in the covenant to Moses, he didn't say, I am going to be grumpy for about a thousand years, and then I'm going to get very nice when Jesus comes along, and that'll be good. You know, my hormonal cycle goes about a thousand years, you know. That would be 5,000 years, technically, but um, You see the point? He didn't change They made a call Um, You see, if you've been going here for like a year or two or whatever And you've heard me preaching You you might get be a little confused by what I'm saying Because you might be thinking Nick, but wait a second I thought that you've said for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks 
that salvation is by grace through faith. Like, you believe in Jesus, God saves you, he has this unconditional love for you. I don't ever use the word unconditional, but that's what most people like to say. And, um, and isn't, it's just wonderful, and we, can, we don't have to, like, earn our salvation, but it sounds like this is like they weren't good enough, and so they got killed. And I, that's why it's very important that you pay attention to the language the Bible actually is using here. It doesn't say they weren't good enough. It doesn't say that. It doesn't use the language of works. It uses the language of faith. It says, they set their hearts on evil things. That is, they put the, they put the, the purpose of their being, the full weight of who they all were, and they accepted into their hearts and their souls. They believed in, they trusted in evil things. They looked to, with all the weight of their faith, evil things to provide for them what they needed, rather than looking to the provider. This is not an issue of these people didn't, weren't good enough. Like, if you read the story of the Exodus and them coming to the promised land, they were terrible. They did all kinds of things God didn't do anything to them for. But at these moments, they demonstrated that the issue wasn't they didn't act well enough. They, they demonstrated that what they had was not faith. What they had was anti-faith. They didn't believe in Christ. They absolutely rejected him with all that they were as their provider. In four different, very intense, very in-your-face ways. Through idolatry, sensuality, testing, and grumbling. So here's one of my famous drawings. Um, at least there aren't people in it. And, um, but you see, you see the, here's, the, here's the point, right? When love and knowledge are divided by some wall, knowledge does not produce knowledge, it produces ignorance because it's never framed right. Knowledge frames itself in our ego and in our arrogance, our pride. And then it produces what, is, what comes from a combination of our pride and that knowledge, which is always going to be nutty. So, so not, that's why you can never educate somebody out of their ignorance. Edu- education is helpful in helping somebody move out of ignorance, but it's not sufficient because ignorance is fundamentally a moral category, not an informational one alone. Does that make sense? So once this, this division produces that kind of ignorance, and then you add the assurance that comes from that ignorance, like, I'm a Christian, I'm, everything's great, I'm not fragile, I'm there, I'm going, to, I'm going to heaven, everything's fantastic. Well, what do you get? Well, then you get, you get the pride this produces, plus this assurance that I'm doing fantastic, which means when you add that delusional pride to a delusional kind of assurance, and who isn't God anymore? God. And who is? Well, the deluded, prideful, assured person, which produces very predictably sins of presumption and of rebellion, or you could say presumption and victimhood, right? Sins of presumption, idolatry, I'm going to reject you as a provider, and I'm going to find a new provider. And indulgence, what is indulgence? Indulgence is, I'm God, I'm going to reject you as a provider, and I'm going to become my own provider, right? That's what sexual immorality is, right? It's to say, I'm not going to seek to be fulfilled in this thing through your provision the way you've defined it to be, but I'm going to get rid of your definition, and I'm going to illicitly or sinfully get it however I want to. I will provide it for myself. It's a rejection of God as provider and making you the provider. So idolatry is rejecting God as provider for some other provider. Indulgence is rejecting God as provider to be your own provider, right? Testing God is to say, unless you give me this, I won't participate with you. That is to turn the doctrines of, that is to turn the relationship of graciousness into a relationship of earned approval, but who has to earn whose approval? You see how deluded that is? Okay, God, I know we've been functioning on this whole, you're benevolent, and I'm not very good, and I receive grace from you and goodness from you, and it's fantastic. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this relationship where we earn each other's approval, and you better do this or you're not going to have mine. (laughs) What? I mean, it's like my five-year-old coming to me and telling me that. Daddy, I just want you to know that I do not approve of you. Because we haven't had Jolly Ranchers for dinner in like two weeks. 
and they're never all watermelon. You always throw in those sour apple ones, and they're terrible, right? That's, that's crazy. If anybody should need anybody's approval, he should need my approval. I don't care about his approval. I don't need a five-year-old's approval. Even when he's 25, I'm not going to need his approval. I'm a grown man. I get my approval from God. I don't get it from him. But if he needs it, if anybody in that relationship needs approval, he needs mine. And I give it to him because I know he needs it. And I try to make a parallel how I think God approves of him in his life. So when he makes the transition to realize he doesn't need my approval, he needs God's, it works. But imagine how delusional testing God is. Well, if you don't do this for me, you're not going to have my approval, and I'm going to be very upset. And I'm going to tell people about how not generous you are, right? And grumbling is just, forget you, I'm just going to tell people you're bad. I'm just going to slander you as a provider. You see, they're delusional expressions of anti-faith. Do, do, do people who exhibit those things have saving faith? So is this an issue of works? Or is this an issue of faith has to be faith? It has to be real. If you trust in Christ, you've got to trust in Christ. If you're going to believe in God, you've got to believe in God. You see? It, it, you see what I'm saying? This is— all this tells us is God doesn't play games. That's all it's saying. It's not saying you have to earn your salvation. You don't have any, there's no possibility of your earning salvation. You just have to trust in the provider to provide it. Right? If my son says to me, I don't want any of your food, I didn't tell him he had to get his own food. He just has to receive it from me. That's all. I want to give it to him. But if he says, I don't want any of your food, I'm leaving. Well, I might still throw a bun at him on the way out of the door, but there's not much I can do. You see what I'm saying? So, anyway, I have to move on here. We're kind of getting there. So let's end with this. How do you avoid it? This was avoidable. God did not take them out in the desert to kill them. He took them out in the desert to take them through a refinement process and then to bring them into the promised land. Everything he planned for them and everything he did for them was good. So how do you, how do you avoid this? Now here's one of the things I struggle with as a senior pastor. I've only been a senior pastor for two years, and I've known a bunch of senior pastors, and I've known a bunch of senior pastors who kind of imploded. And so I kind of look at them and I go, am I going to implode? And one of the things, it's really easy to do if you're me and you're impressed with yourself, is that to think, well, I'm just better. I mean, I'm just better. Like, they had these fatal flaws and I, I you know, but like, you can't do that because I really, I really believe they were better, they're better men than me. The, what happened to them is what happens to people when they're in charge, right? Like, when you, it's, it's not that, it's the, the, the context did something to them and it's going to do it to me. And if I don't want that to happen to me, I can't just go, well, I'm just different. I'm just, you know, I just doesn't. No, I'm exactly like that guy. So how do I avoid that? And there's only one way to avoid that, and it's right here in this passage. Vigilance that seeks humility and a trust in, in Christ and in God to provide what's necessary. Otherwise, I'm going to end up in, I'm going to be strewn across the desert. I, just, I know it. I'm not, we're not special. You're not special. I'm not special. We're incredibly fragile beings. Let's just look at the last week of your life. And don't think delusionally about it. Just think about how many evidences of your fragility, your emotional fragility, your spiritual fragility, your physical fragility, your thinking fragility. I mean, how many times last week would you have loved to put together a coherent thought, but you just couldn't? You just wanted to watch TV? Like, that's how weak your mind is, right? That's how weak my—we're fragile, And so here's, here's the problem. And here's, here's why the vigilance is so necessary. You've got a people who rejected God in four, four totally different, each sufficient for their death ways, absolutely rejecting him as provider, while all, all the while, God was this heartbreakingly beautiful and mind-blowingly powerful provider. I mean, how could you, how could you write a story in which— the protagonist lover was a better provider than God bringing the Jews out of Egypt. 
He sets them free without one arrow or one sword from those powerful military people in the history of the world up until that point. They were nothing but slaves, had no weapon, nothing. Through a series of plagues and splitting seas and turning the largest river in the world to blood, he gets them out without a shot fired and without a single casualty on their side. They cross a sea to get into a desert in which there is no water, no food. A very large number of them eat food that appears on the ground and water that flows out of rocks for a long time. They're not a society. They have to become a society. So God gives them a law covenant, and he provides them with incredibly good leadership. I mean, Moses is a fantastic leader, and they needed leadership, and he gives it to them. He tells them they are on their way to a land that is fabulous, like that they have never seen and never known, even though they lived in the richest country in the world. They are going somewhere better. And he tells them over and over again, and in every situation where there's some kind of danger, he provides for them. And yet, they get to this point psychologically where they're just like, you're terrible. So, so here's the question. What do we have to be vigilant about? That. And therefore, one of the most important parts of our vigilance is to see God as the, as the heartbreakingly beautiful provider of all of our needs. I mean, how do, you, how do you diminish all the desires to set your heart on evil things? If you're a Christian, you have to believe that the greatest danger in your life and the greatest struggle of your story is going to be not setting your heart on evil things. How do you do that? Hearts don't do that well. Hearts don't not set themselves on things. Hearts are designed to set themselves on things. And therefore, a safe heart is not one you keep telling not to set, it, set itself on something, but it's a heart that you set on something else. That is God. It, it is to see God as the providing one, to see God as the saving one, to see God as the loving one, to see God as the one who does provide, so that the idols don't have a chance and the sensualities don't have a chance. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, um, sin isn't strongest when I'm around it the most. Sin is strongest when my faith isn't doing well for some reason. It's, it's shrinking emotionally for some reason. That's when, that's when, all, that's when I want to go watch too much TV or buy something because I feel like it or eat more than I should or just take a really long nap or you know, surf to California on porn sites. I mean, that's, that's when those temptations are strongest. They're strongest not when I'm around the stuff. I'm not around pornography, but you know what I mean. It's not when you're around the stuff. It's when your faith isn't strong. All those other things get bigger and they glow when Christ isn't big. You have no, there's no possibility for you to live a life where you overcome sinful desires without an enormous God at the center of your heart. It's impossible. Your affections for everything that aren't Jesus have to be blown away by a greater affection. You can't just tell your heart not to feel, right? Um, let me end with a story. Uh, I, I had one of those kind of bad weeks this week. I came back from vacation. I'm digging myself out of two weeks of being away. And, uh, and uh, uh, so this is, my, this is my fifth original talk I'm giving this week. I've already given four 60-minute original lectures this week to the teachers of both Christian schools, this one and the one across town that we work with. And um, this, this is my fifth one. A bit of a long week for me, speaking-wise. And um, during the week about Wednesday when I started preparing my sermon while I was writing the other talks too, um, I found out that two families that are, re were really, are really cool families have decided they're leaving High Point. They're going somewhere else. And I know what church they're going to, and it's a fabulous church. But it's still, no matter how much you can be like, well, you know, they're wonderful. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it's too bad. I like them. They just don't like me, right? You know, it's that kind of— but when, when, And you can't not take that personally, because when people vote with their feet, they are voting on your leadership. But they just are. And um, meanwhile, um, it, was, it was kind of a metaphor for my last year, though. That's one of the reasons why it kind of felt— icky, was because for the last year, I came here to try to help rebuild what God wanted to do at High Point Church, because we had been like 10 years of decline, right? But I spent a good bit of last year helping a, the, the school of another church across town, all the way this side of town, rebuild and not go under. 
instead of working here. I mean, there were weeks where I'd spend 20, 25 hours on that project, not on this church. And, and so it, to see somebody leave when I had spent four days doing that was just a metaphor for my last year. And it made me doubt whether or not I had done the right thing. Because I felt, and I talked to the elders at the time, and I felt very strongly that that's what God wanted me to do. He wanted me to help them if, if we could. And, um, but it was tough because, because the school, uh, his enrollment was 175. You need 200 just to make it work financially. And so that wasn't working. This, and I was just, I was frustrated. I had a long week. And I didn't go out and hire a prostitute or get it, become another religion. And I didn't say that if God didn't do something, I wasn't going to follow him anymore. And he needed my approval. And I didn't even really grumble and complain about it. But I felt anxious about it. I could just feel that anxiety coming up. You're not going to win. This isn't going to work. God isn't going to, you know, that thing. And, um, but then, um, it occurred to me that at the end of the week, I realized that there were these provisions there that I, I just didn't see until the big one came. So on Wednesday, right after, I think it was Lisa that told me this really great family had decided to go to another church. So it was a a big emotional loss because they're really emotionally healthy people. And if they don't like you, probably says something more about me than them, right? And so it's just, it was hard. And right after that, you know what I, you know what my next appointment was? It was to start my sermon prep. It was to read this passage. Right? Now, in one sense, that's like, oh, it's just your week. But do you see what a grace that was providentially? That right when I, right when I got the news that could turn me into a murmurer, I read this passage and was terrified. Right? That's not God being mean. That is grace. Right? That is, that is benevolence. Right? And then so at, at the end of Friday, so it's my day off. It's 1030 on my day off. I've been teaching all morning across town at this other Christian school. And Diane, who's the principal of both schools, comes up to me afterwards and she wants to say thanks. And so she's like, you know, I've, the teacher's been saying what you taught was very helpful and they really feel like they can use it and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and she said, oh, I don't know if you know this, but enrollment just crossed 200. And for the first time in 15 years, ACLS will not have fewer kids next year than they had this year. Of course, I flipped out. I was just like, I was like, woo! Praise God! That is awesome! I turned around, the teachers are there. This is awesome! This is awesome, guys! That is amazing! God is so good! And then I, they're all looking at me like I'm crazy. And I was like, you haven't told them, have you? And she's like, no. <laughs> no, I haven't. I was like, oh, well, tell them now. I want to see their reaction. So she told them, and they weren't anywhere near. It didn't seem like they was excited about me, but as me, but they just showed it differently, I'm sure. And, um, and then I came home, and, and the next day, which it would have been yesterday, I was thinking about that. That, for me, was the big—that was the, the hammer over the head, like, um, you idiot. Um, there's water flowing out of a rock in the middle of the desert, right? Um, I realized that that, that Sunday previous— I had met 15 or 20 brand new people at Get Connected. And four or five of them had said to me, Nick, I found something here at High Point I've never found in my Christian life or anywhere in my life. I, I, I'm growing in a way I've never grown before. In this church, um, in the people here and what's happening here, it's just, I've never been excited about church before. And now I am. And, if, and two of the people I talked to last Sunday, one of them has, has believed like in the last couple of weeks. And the other one is so new, she's not quite sure how to refer to what's happening in her. And, and instead of, you know, you can just pridefully say, well, good riddance to those other people, because I mean, no, I mean, I still hate to see friends go. I hate to see friends go. But I realize that God is providing all around me. It's, it's me. I'm the bad receiver. He's not the bad giver. I'm the bad receiver. I'm the one who's fragilely delusional, and if I don't figure out how to trust God and to get a little humility, I could just about end up in the desert, and I need to recognize that I need to go back to him and, and, and try to figure out, because the, the t- over 200 people being enrolled at school is not the great thing he provided. The great thing he provided was Jesus for me, and that, that should have been provision enough for that an- anxious fear not to take hold. But my vigilance is not what it should be. It's not what it should be. And I, I really believe in some ways that that experience was God's providence because Sunday was coming and you need to know this. 
And I got to not just read it and study it and outline it, I got to experience it and share it. And so, to go away from this passage, I think one of the things, the, the place we have to be at Christians is our assurance has to ride this knife's edge between recognizing our dramatic fragility. You have to believe you're fragile. And the greatest fragility is of mind. We are prone to fragility of mind. We're prone to be delusional in how we look at God. But yet, but yet, it says right there, it quotes quotes from chapter one, it says the same thing. God is faithful. And there is always a way for him to provide for you if you turn to him. See, it's not salvation by works. It's salvation by faith. But in order to be saved, that faith has to be there. It's got to be real. You've got to turn to him. You've got to believe that that no matter what the temptation is, what the struggle is, what the provision you need is, there is a way Christ will provide it completely on his terms, not needing your approval, but that he will provide it. And if you will set your heart on seeing how he is a great provider and how you are a terrible receiver— your heart will be fixed on the thing that can keep you both vigilant and humble as well as powerfully courageous because of the hope and love that will come from how beautiful the Savior is. Which may be the long way around to saying, have faith in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus and be vigilant against the flesh and sin and pride. Because your courage cannot be greater than your humility. And neither can your security. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us. God, would you help us to be a vigilant people? Will you help us to make friends with people who will help us to be vigilant on us? Help us to have candid friendships. Help us to be a, a community of people vigilant for each other and with each other. Help us to be encouraging people who put courage into each other, not by, by speaking pride into each other's lives, but by encouraging humility and speaking about you, the provider, the faithful one, the savior, the giver. Help us, help, God, please help us to be vigilant humble, believing, and help our forefathers, those who died in the desert, be eternal examples to us that bring about, brings about the vigilance that doesn't come from fear, but the vigilance that comes from real faith. And we pray that through that, we would have a, a, a real knowledge that when combined with love, is an ever-growing knowledge of you and your beauty and your goodness so that our hearts would not ever be set on evil things but would be set wholly on you. In Jesus' name, amen.